Farmers, gardeners, and ranchers often ask me for a simple prescription to cure the ailment, be it a nitrogen issue, weeds, or any other wicked problem. They want to be told the answer. But just as there is no one way to raise a child, there is no single answer when thinking about soil. To find solutions to complex problems, new approaches and new thinking are required. What would nature do? Through a deepening of our relationship with nature's dynamics, we enhance natural systems, reduce waste, and reduce the need for external inputs. Happy New Year and welcome back to our podcast, Tasting Terroir, a journey that explores the link between healthy soil and the flavor and health of your food. I'm your host, Sarah Harper. That was an excerpt from the book, For the Love of Soil, by Nicole Masters. Nicole was born in Auckland, New Zealand. She is an independent agroecologist, systems thinker, author, and educator. Nicole's formal background is in ecology, soil science, and organizational learning from Otago and Auckland universities. She has been providing agricultural consulting and extension services in regenerative agriculture since 2003 and is the director of Integrity Soils Limited. With her team of soil coaches, she works alongside producers in the U.S., Canada, and across Australasia. You'll get to hear more about the book and a discussion between Nicole and my co-host, Dr. Jill Clapperton, in my interview with them both later in this episode. But first, I want to take a moment to share an update with you about changes that we're making to the show for this coming year. It's been a while since we've talked. I'm sure you've noticed. I've missed bringing you all the amazing stories of people that are making our food system better by building up soil health. But alas, there are some things that are out of our control. Toward the end of last year, I got pretty sick and had to take some time to recover. Then, of course, there were the holidays. But even before that, I was realizing that the pace of creating a high-quality episode each week while balancing the attention I need to pay to the people actually paying me was getting out of balance. To put it in terms that this show deals with, I was mining myself dry and not allowing enough time to regenerate. It takes a lot of time to schedule, interview, edit, and produce an episode. All of these actions are a labor of love for me, but they are time-consuming nonetheless. And for me, there is no team to hand it off to. I do every aspect of the show myself. It was clear by the end of the year that the pace I was going at with this show wasn't sustainable. In thinking about how to address this challenge, I had a few different options, but what I did not want was for this show to devolve into a series of interviews with whoever I could grab uh, just to make sure that we kept getting an episode out each week. But I also did not want to pod fade, (laughs) if you will just steadily putting out fewer episodes at an unpredictable pace. To me, the reason to listen to this show versus many of the others about food or soil health lies almost completely in the fact that we can bring you access to some of the best people in this space through their connection to Dr. Jill Clapperton and others in our network, and through the knowledge I've accumulated over the past 20 years to provide a different perspective in the questions asked and the discussions shared. A different perspective than you would hear on most other shows that maybe focus on just the science or just the nutrition, but don't pull them all together. So I've decided to make some changes to the show, which will help make it a more sustainable project for me and hopefully 
a more reliable and valuable one for you. First, I'm moving the show release day to Mondays, starting today. This gives me the weekend to finish up an episode that I may need a little more time with, and it gives you a chance to start the week off right. Of course, you can listen to our shows anytime you want when you subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform or listen to them through our website, globalfoodfarm.com, and just click the podcast tab. Next, I'm going to release new episodes every other week instead of every week. This will ensure that I'm putting forward really high-quality shows while not shortchanging the folks in our community who value what we do enough to pay for it. Finally, I'm going to start our episodes with a clip or two from various presentations and work that Dr. Jill Clapperton has done on the topics of soil health and nutrient density, in addition to providing a feature interview in each episode. In this way, you'll get a chance to learn more about the science behind building up soil health from one of the best sources out there. This background will help empower you as a consumer and home gardener, as well as giving you a base to get even more out of the expert interviews that we feature. I know you didn't ask for this explanation, but I did want to let you know that I really appreciate you, our audience, and I view this show as building a relationship, not just pushing out marketing content. Of course, you can always find more information and go to a deeper level on the topics we discuss here by joining our private social network, globalfoodfarm.com. We'd love to have you. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, on with the show. Following our new format, I'm going to start this episode by sharing a clip from one of Dr. Jill Clapperton's most in-demand recent topics. She presented this information at the United Kingdom's Groundswell event and has subsequently shared it with our network. In this clip, she explains why keeping the soil covered is so important and how plant roots play a vital role in building up good soil structure, structure that life depends on. We need to actually cover the soil and and remove or totally get rid of any kind of soil erosion. Because as soon as we start losing our soil, we lose our capacity for any kind of soil health. Because what runs off first? It's the light stuff. It's not the sand and the rocks and things. It's the topsoil that runs off. It's the organic matter that runs off. It's the organic matter that dissolves and runs off. And so we lose our entire capacity for having soil health as soon as we have any kind of runoff, any kind of soil erosion of any kind. The characteristic that really defines soil health or healthy soil is soil structure. And it's one of the easiest things to measure. So infiltration can also be a measure of soil structure. But if we have good soil structure, we have better rooting. We we have created a better habitat. Um, And as soon as we have... the the roots can penetrate the soil more. That means that they can get more energy. They can get more nutrients. They can actually explore the soil more so that um, they can tap into these other nutrients. And the more they explore the soil and the more they find more nutrients, the more lateral roots they'll make because lateral roots cost energy. And you need to have the photosynthesis in order to support lateral roots. So you can see, once again, how having better rooting gives you better above ground and better above ground can give you more rooting. Roots and soil are mixed with bacteria, fungi, protozoa, microarthropods, earthworms, insects, algae, 
And we all act to create soil structure. And this leads to, right, better water and air infiltration. So better water and air quality. You get root penetration, which gives you better above ground growth, which leads to better rooting. You get more predator-prey interactions, which means that you start to recycle your nutrients. You have a greater diversity of soil organisms, uh, which microorganisms and fauna. Uh, decomposition starts happening above and below ground, and not just below ground, because below ground is our number one source of carbon. And we get a lot more plant communication, which means that resources are moving from, this, from a source to a sink. So a plant in your row that's struggling perhaps or doesn't have quite enough can actually be shuttled some of the nutrients it needs from the other plants that are within that community. As you can see from Jill's description, soil structure plays a key role in so many different aspects of growing healthy food. And the practices that farmers use on the field can play a big part in improving that soil structure and therefore the health of the soil. This will be helpful to keep in mind as you hear from our next guest. I'm really pleased to be able to introduce you to another fantastic soil health educator and consultant, Nicole Masters, and her book, For the Love of Soil. As noted in the introduction, she has a long history of helping others to improve their soil health and in so doing, improve their businesses, their lives, and of course, the food and fiber that comes from it. In the first part of the interview, Jill and Nicole exchange insights about their shared journey to improve soil health, followed by my interview with Nicole about her book. Just look yeah, at the book. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. That's that means great. a lot. It's a great book. Yeah. As I'm getting more feedback from people who are like, you know, this. I was, you know, a hardcore conventional high input and this book changed my life. And I'm like, that's what it's about, you know, and it's not the messenger, it's the message. How do we find those catalysts um, to spark someone off and who knows what they're going to do, but hopefully that involves using a lot less ag chemical and being more profitable and having insects and everything come back. But intuitively, Nicole, we all know that what you're doing is affecting food quality and the nutritional composition of the food. We just haven't been able to measure it yet. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited to be able to see us be able to do this because this is the piece that's that's really missing. And I think, you know, talking with the brands, there's a lot like the clothing brands are really getting it, which is interesting. And, And so it's like the clothing guys want to drive it. They're not necessarily measuring nutrient density, but they're getting in behind it because they're closer to a consumer that's saying, hey, we want this kind of output. Um, And I think the commodity market's kind of slowing things down, uh, obviously, on that side. So it's like, how do we we find these marketplaces and support the people that are going to provide that? Let's just go around the commodity system (laughs) because we can't, right? I just don't know how we're going to work within it. Everybody holds up isolated cases. What I hear all the time is like, Oh, well, there's only one or two. And I'm like, no, there's no, no, there are lots of people that are doing really amazing things. You just don't hear about them all the time because Mm -hmm. some of them are really introverted and they're just doing their own thing. They're they're doing their work. Little tiny things help other things. That's Mm -hmm. why I like whole foods. And I like people talking about whole systems is because we don't know what tiny little change or what organism that changes everything. Like does that metabiosis change? Mm -hmm. We don't know 
what those organisms are. And that tiny change might be in 10 years time going to change the whole thing. Yeah. And we have no idea. I think, you know, being able to measure the quality of the food at the output is one way that we can start to capture this without these huge data sets. Well, it's also, you know, when you think about it, actionable results are really what it count, what counts. Like, yeah. what can I action? I have all these numbers. What do they mean? Can mm. I act? Can I do anything to affect them? Which is why we really need these curated experiments yeah. so that we can start to understand what is changing. How are we changing? What are we doing? I had a, I had this aha moment. Uh, I work with horses. I love horses. They're kind of one of my first loves. And uh, this brilliant um, instructor I was working with said, the premise of natural horsemanship, which is a lot of my training is based on, is deeply flawed because it's based on animals in the wild that are not domesticated, that are in a flight or fight stage. And you're basing all of these assumptions on that. And I'm like, mind literally blown. Oh, my God. And so it's like, where where do we come from when we are making some of these choices? And it could be a deeply flawed assumption that we decide, you know, in a couple of decades time. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're not based on natural systems. We're based mm. on a very high intensity tillage based system with lots of chemical inputs. And we're expecting yeah. to make decisions based on that. And we can't, I mean, yeah. it's sort of like when learning about nutrition, I mean, most of our, most of our daily requirements are based on your average middle-aged man. Yeah. Well, I'm not that. <laughs> yeah. And so how does it work for me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's the it's the science of averages and what we're seeing are all these outliers that is the really fascinating place and where the curiosity should be and scientists just, that I, I come across are ignoring the outliers. And I'm like, surely as a scientist, the definition is curiosity, is to let's look at those, what is going on over there. And um, it's been a little frustrating, I must say. And now I'm just like, oh, we'll just get on with it. <laughs> get on with it. Just move along. Yeah. Move along. Because the farmers are going to push hard and mm -hmm. the producers are going to push hard. And so you need either get out of the way or jump on the wagon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. along those lines, I wanted to to get maybe both of you to, to share your perspective about, so you talk about it a lot in the book and, and of course your work with, uh, with producers, Nicole, is that, um, and, you know, I've, I've really tried to build this path for value-added capture for regenerative farmers. That's my, I mean, they deserve it. They deserve it, you know, and, and it should be there and all of that. But mm. I've had to kind of retreat back to, look, farmers should just do this for themselves because mm -hmm. it's so much better for their health, their personal health, their stress mm -hmm. level, their land, reduce yeah. save their costs, reduce their inputs, all of that. And, and they should still fight for a claim of the value that they're creating. They shouldn't give up on that. But especially with high inputs, you know, that catches people's attention and adds a, another level of stress for conventional farmers that maybe is an opportunity for, for some of yeah. them to come back, to come to this thing that may have been off-putting to them or they may see it like organic or another niche that seems like I can't be that or that's not me or, you know. So yeah. do you see that? And what's what's your experience with this time and, and, with, and with the appeal to regenerative to farmers that may be more open to transitioning? Mm. I, I definitely think that nitrogen prices are, are very stimulatory on uh, <laughs> thinking outside the box. And mm -hmm. 
I make the pretty bold claim that I'll stand by is that I can walk onto any high input conventional property, reduce their their nitrogen inputs by 30% without any change in yield. And I'm I'm very confident in being able to say that. And I think that's got to be something that's attractive to people in terms of I want to, you know, I ask this question in my workshops, which is what do you value about the current modern conventional system? Because there's there's entrenched values that people feel when we're talking about conventional agriculture or regenerative agriculture that we're actually attacking their values. Like it's not about this different idea. It's about you are literally attacking what I care about and what I value. Okay. So what are the values of that in conventional agriculture? Well, maybe it's efficiencies, maybe it's uh, the machinery, the technology, the commodity market, not having to do all the marketing. Well, okay, cool. Well, let's keep those pieces that are your values that work well. We don't have to throw everything out with the bathwater and then look at how do we bring that into a system where we are bringing more vibrant health to that ecosystem and fulfilling on other things you might value, which might be your own health, you know, spending time with family, profitability, whatever that piece is. And I think what we're going through is a society of polarization where people can't talk about anything. If that's guns or politics or immunizations or ah, whatever. (laughs) And, and, And so we're creating this society that can no longer have any conversation about things. And this is happening with conventional and regenerative is people like digging their heels in mm-hmm. and like throwing stuff over a parapet at each other instead of, Hey, there's some pieces of this that we know that work really well. Okay. Let's think about that. And then what is the downside if we go too far in one extreme or the other? And let's talk about that. You know, if you only build soil health, but you're not profitable and your um, animal performance is suffering. Okay, cool. Let's pull that back a little bit. You know, there's this, <laughs> pendulum of okay for you as an individual what are your goals how do we how do we work with that and I'm always concerned about dogma and the wrong and righteousness that kind of comes into industries and I think that is very off-putting to people you know people getting really um adamant let's say glyphosate you know that's another Mm -hmm. one of these polarizing topics people get real mad about hey, you're doing the best you can with what you've got. What are other ways that we can help increase that efficacy while you work this out? You know, Mm -hmm. and maybe that's going to take you three to seven years. I don't know what it looks like, but I think it's everyone's individual responsibility to to just just be empathetic, just start listening to each other. Um, Yeah, that's my... I think I went down the rabbit hole. I apologize. No, it's wonderful. Wonderful. I know you share a lot of that, Jill. I've heard you talk... In a similar vein. It's all about helping people take the first step. Mm-hmm. And 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 part of that is is just like Nicole said, is starting a conversation and 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 understanding that there's so much similarity. Like if we focus on what we have in common instead of what we have, what we don't have in common. I think we we get a lot we, we'll so we'll move along so much better because it, I mean if we really looked at it okay I might be not this or I'm not that but I'm all these other things and so are you well we have a lot in common so let's focus on what we have in common let's focus on the positive and and not on the negative and let's not pigeonhole ourselves because there's all I mean there's thousands of shades of gray mm-hmm. <laughs> everything isn't just black and white. And I I think that's an important thing to think about too, is that, and everybody has their own level of risk tolerance and, and, and what they can 
and and what steps they can take. I maybe I could take this step, but you can take this other big step because that's your level of tolerance. Well, good. Congratulations, yeah. you know, but I'm happy for you to do that. And I'm happy and please just tolerate the fact that I can only take a small step. Mm-hmm. Um and and embrace the fact that I'm taking any step at all. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think that that's an important thing. For people that aren't as familiar with you, I mean you 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 you've got this great book um that's set for the love of soil. And really, um, maybe just tell people what went into that and what is that, what does that give them when they when they dive into that book? Yeah, I was often asked to write a book for like soils for dummies. And there's really nothing stupid about producers or soil. So trying to find a way of my implicit understanding when I'm out in the field and I can see things, you know, see what weeds are saying, what are these insects saying, um, what are the species diversity and animal health, how is this all speaking? And then how do I make that explicit in a way that someone could take the book and walk out in the field and start to think, you know, let's dig a hole. What are we seeing here? How do we know if this is healthy or not healthy? What are the implications? Is my water cycle working? Am I even growing good nutrient dense food? Um, yeah. So d- to just really empower somebody so that they can start to see and read the landscape. Yeah. And um, obviously producers, you know, farmers and ranchers would get, get a lot from understanding, you know, this, the different chapters that you go through and, mm-hmm. and, and really talking about the underground microbiome, the livestock, the, you know, all of that, that, that helps make soil healthy. Um, yeah. But, but you, I found too, um, and I listened to the audio book and I appreciate you, reading it. It's always nice to hear the author, you know, uh, read I think it. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, it's not, a you know, you can go, oh, that's not a hugely professional speaking voice, but I, I must say every book that I've really enjoyed has been read by the author. There's, um, I mean, I think it's um, Braiding Sweetgrass. It's just such a phenomenal book and she, she could be a professional reader, but the impact that that has, it's someone actually speaking to you directly. It feels like. Right. From, from their real experience. And, you know, Mm -hmm. as you tell the stories, you know, you, you know, you're remembering them, you're, you know, you're sharing them. And um, so, but what I thought was great too, is that it's very accessible for consumers and for Mm -hmm. people that aren't farmers. I mean, there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of detail for the farmers, um, but there are kind of a new class of consumers that are starting to get really interested in this and understanding the link between soil health and the microbiome and their gut health and all of that. And so there's a yeah. tremendous amount of information for them. Did you, did you have consumers in mind as you're doing this book too, or how is that, this is a challenge to balance these audiences. How, how are you thinking yeah. about consumers? Well, part of it too, was thinking about anyone that eats food needs to know this, you yeah. know, like what is actually happening in the food system and and why in a way that's not like, oh, farmers and ranchers are so bad, you know, they're doing all these terrible things. And it's like, well, here's the structures that are in play. And here's some of the history mm-hmm. as to why this has come about. And I think understanding that is what empowers us too. So that when you go to your farmer's market or you're in Whole Foods, you can ask specific questions um, so that it's going to help against the greenwashing, I think, of food systems where people will just say, oh, it's natural. And you're like, well, what does that actually mean? Or it's regenerative. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you explain to me what you, how you see regenerative agriculture, um, mm-hmm. you know, and spray free. Okay. Well, 
what does that mean? Or organic. Oh, you mean you've cultivated your fields a thousand times and chopped up all the microbiology? Okay, I'm interested in in what you're doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was very much, you know, if you eat food, let's think about what's in that food. What are some of the food additives that are not you know, I often think we shouldn't be labeling organic where we should be labeling what sprays went onto this food so you can make a better decision about actually, you know what, I don't want dicamba and paraquat and glyphosate to be on my food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I look forward well, to and that. That's, <laughs> and, and that's back to the, the point you raised earlier with Jill too about um, glyphosate. And that, that was great that you, you brought that up because, you know, um, Environmental groups, you know, well-meaning in, in some in some cases, but they often will shine a light on one thing, mm-hmm. just like just like, uh, you know, brands will shine a light on one thing is like it's uh, is as a positive. Well, some yeah. of the activist groups shine a light on one thing that's a negative and both are missing the holistic yeah. link between everything. Yeah. Like it, it almost seems impossible for us to talk about a holistic system, just kind of like like we're so polarized. So we yeah. get into these us versus them. Well, everything has a has a counter effect. And so yeah. how how do you do you think farmers that you're working with, they already know that and they've been pushed out of that because of kind of the the the, the input system that they have to work within, or has it become less intuitive as they've gone to school and this is how you've been taught, this is how you farm? I can't think of many producers that were born with it. Uh, or had some of them had influences from grandparents that still remember some of the traditional knowledge or um, working with people that, you know, have exposure to indigenous traditional thinking and knowledge that are thinking in whole systems. But our whole education system, our whole language, you know, the Western language is designed to describe things as, as nouns and separate everything. And so, we go through academics or we go through school or even how we're raised, we're raised to see things in their separate pieces instead of the whole. And that was part of the challenge of the book too, is like we can let's zoom in, but then we need to keep zooming out. Mm -hmm. We need to, and we do that for our own body. It's like, um, I don't know, like say you've got a rash and you just put cream and you keep putting cream on that rash until you get allergic to that cream probably <laughs> um, instead of going, okay, what what have I been eating in the last week? What have I washing my clothes and what what's that what's that piece and and that diagnostic and that that's where I think the diagnostics in this book that talk about looking at landscape also apply of talking of thinking about the human body. And the more that we can keep thinking, you know, how does this work in nature and what would be an unintended consequence of doing this? You know, I think the the anti-brigade, like let's say glyphosate, we hate glyphosate, we're going to ban it, is the other side of the hand of the, hey, we're going to use dicamba and genetically engineer it. It's not really shifting our whole system's thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we ban glyphosate, you know what? There's going to be another chemical behind it and it's probably going to be worse. Um, what about paraquat? <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, let's, let's talk about paraquat, shall we? You know, and so- Someone who I mean, you have personal, life. yeah, personal experience with that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's the the joy of um of people that have had multiple chemical exposures from the womb. So my mm-hmm. my my mother and father were both, and my grandparents were exposed to PFOS and PFAS mm. through military, uh, through the military, and so the influence that that's had on epigenetics. And I have a gene called the MTHFR gene, which about forty million Americans have. 
Hmm. But it gets switched on by exposure to chemicals early in life. And what it does is it means that the methylation pathway in my body to detoxify through the liver doesn't work. Hmm. And that's why I got so sick with paraquat. Um, But I think that's part of my passion is like we can have a little bit of chemical exposure and not get sick. It's, and we can do that even in agricultural settings. If we set up a microbiome that's incredibly healthy and vibrant, you could have glyphosate coming down in the rainfall, you can have sprayer from the neighbors, and you still have a microbiome that's able to consume and break that down and recover. But we don't have that anymore. So it's that, and thinking about that with our own human bodies, right? How mm-hmm. do I... How do I build resilience in every single aspect of life? And that includes my mental resilience, my physical resilience, and the resilience of land. Well, and that's why that's so interesting because a number of the producers in our network that Jill works with, um, you know, they they haven't because they do no till, you know, they always do, you know, never till. Um, some of them, you know, do end up needing to use small amounts of glyphosate, much less than they ever, you know, did. And mm-hmm. yet they test the end result of the actual grain and they're, and it's glyphosate free. I mean, like yep. it, it's not there because to your point, their soil is so healthy from all the other things that they've done that any residual stuff, it's not sprayed on the crop and it's, you know, all of that. And, and it's not used as a desiccant, of course. And yep. um, then the soil is able to break down completely whatever yep. little amount was, was left before it was planted. Yep. And so, um, you know, if you're looking at the actual grain that they're going to sell, it you know it doesn't have it there, yeah. and yet um, the system isn't designed to look at that. The system is designed to just look at you know did you ever use it and treat yeah. someone that ever used it the same as someone that way overused it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that caused a lot yeah. of a lot of problems. Yeah, and I think one of my early ahas about this was in two thousand and six in a project in New Zealand where um, they they applied two four D to soil that was being regeneratively managed and that all that 2,4-D was gone. Like not a sink, they couldn't find a trace of it at all. It had been split mm-hmm. out into its different components. And, um, you know, what does it take to build a system like that? And then, yeah, what's the quality of, of what, we're, what we're measuring? So, I, you know, I'm in total agreement with your point, Sarah. Well, and because when you push to ban certain things, again, not in this holistic, like picking certain things and we're going to ban that, Mm-hmm. Um, then you're, you're, you're going to push a lot of people to tillage, you know, you're yeah. going to push, you're going to do other kinds of destruction that doesn't yeah. show up on the little spotlight that you're looking at, but mm-hmm. could be far more destructive to yeah. the overall, overall goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of times those, those edicts are being pushed by people that don't know anything about, <laughs> about the soil, about yeah. microbiome, about farming, about anything. Yeah. They just have their pet project that they're going to drive this issue and, yeah. you know do a lot of harm. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's so much research now about glyphosate and about how destructive it is, but you could point that to every single ag chemical. Yeah. All of them. If you, if you ran down that rabbit hole, I mean, there are a couple I, I do think need to be removed from sale and that would be things like, um, chlorpyrrolids and, um, neonicotinoids. I do think there's a couple that really don't belong to exist in the world at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other ways that we can sub- substitute in terms of, you know, biocontrols on seeds or, you know, there's other options. Um, but I think in terms of glyphosate, it's it's easy to target it because there is so much negative research that's just growing. But then go and do that on paraquat, go and do that on dicamba or 2,4-D, and we're not going to be happier with 
any of them. So let's look at how do we do we need to do crop rotations where every three years or four years you take that crop out and you're going to put in, you know, multi-species cover crops and allow that soil to recover and rejuvenate, bring in livestock. What are you going to do to kind of earn the right to use that chemical input? Um, that's a great way. That's a great way of reframing it. Cause that's the other thing. And to your point about it being so, so partisan and so just polarized, like if you say anything of nuance about glyphosate, then you're automatically accused of like shilling for the for yeah. <laughs> shilling for the, the chemical companies, which, you know, our whole point is we want producers to be able to depend less on all of it, less yeah. on all of the inputs. And that's, and mm-hmm. that's what you and Jill help them do. And mm-hmm. we want more producers to be able to depend less on it. But, you know, just the simplistic idea that people outside of the knowledge of the system can come in and and start diagnosing. Like you wouldn't go in and tell your brain surgeon, well, actually, I think you need to do it this way. And I don't think you should be able to use that tool at all, ever. Yeah. No anesthetic. <laughs> just don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, just yeah. actually, just cure me. That's what I, that's yeah. what I want. Um, but, you know, so I, I'm wondering too, because our, our podcast is Tasting Terroir. And, you know, I think that there are, um, the, increasingly you can, you know, if you if you have a garden or if you work with producers or you grow your own food, you know the difference that can come in the taste mm-hmm. of something, even just because it's fresh and because you, you know, you picked it right away and ate it. But yeah. then as you add these practices, have you had experiences with seeing a change in flavor? Um, obviously, the nutritional change is there. But have mm-hmm. you um, yourself or with others that you've worked with see that connection or what are your thoughts about that? Oh, Oh, absolutely. And I think of a couple of them and it's almost an orgasmic experience. <laughs> Thinking back, there's a, a cherry producer in um, in the Hawke's Bay in New Zealand that's been running a program for quite a while. And every year just before Christmas, because that's when cherry season is, you know, I'd go and buy like three or four boxes and I'd probably eat like five pounds myself in the drive <laughs> home. Like the, the, the flavor is insane. And now they've got to the point where, there is a line of traffic on the side of the road pre-Christmas lining mm-hmm. up and you're only allowed to buy one box of cherries because the demand is so huge. Oh. And so I have to bring like three friends so I can get my three boxes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not sharing with you. Um, but it's 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 like an experience that you can't even you can't even compare it to anything that we eat that you buy from the grocery store. It's not like buying a box of candy or, you know, just fruit and vegetables you would normally buy. Like the, the experience is so nourishing, you know, and Mm. I don't need to eat five pounds and maybe I don't, but um, (laughs) I do have a bit of a thing for cherries, but I I was at um, apricot lane farms uh, this summer and, you know, to eat that fruit that's coming off that property. And it's like every single piece of fruit, just there's like your palate the whole thing's expansive and you feel literally like you're more energized after eating that kind of food and have that kind of experience and I think we've forgotten and um I remember actually my son when he was he was two years old and I couldn't find him and I was a terrible parent and I had these big long concrete steps and I'm like, Oh my gosh, where is he? And I'm going crazy running around and around and around. And then, um, I went up to my dad's place. He was like, I don't know, 400 feet away. And there I find him underneath this. We had one of these blood, um, plums, like the, the Japanese blood plums. And he's sitting underneath this tree and he's just, you know, just dripping everywhere with this incredible, <laughs> 
fruit. And it's like that little guy was like, I know where the good stuff is and I'm going to, he's going to go and test for it. And Mm -hmm. actually watching him as a teenager, even eating food out of our garden, we were growing a kale with a bricks of 15. Mm. I put that as a challenge to all of you that are listening. You see if you can grow a kale at 15 because, oh my gosh, it is sweet. It is flavorful. And to watch him walk to school and grab a handful of kale on the way to the school bus. And I'm like, that's not normal. Mm. Like children shouldn't want to grow a handful of kale and eat that. But they, we haven't kind of destroyed their taste buds at that, that stage of life either. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that is the, the other important thing setting up somebody's palate well Mm -hmm. from the beginning and then also giving yourself patience that that you can reset your palate you know that even if you haven't haven't been eating well that Mm -hmm. you can give yourself time and you will start to really both sense the the subtleties of these these different minerals that are in healthy Mm -hmm. grown food and appreciate them yeah i think that was my biggest shock moving to the u.s is um i couldn't tell the difference between pork lamb beef and chicken because it just tastes like corn mm. and, and I'm like where and and then people are like oh I don't like grass-fed because it's so gamey and I'm like <laughs> what is that well one let's not eat gamey beef like that is a flavor profile that maybe you don't want but mm-hmm. you know I think of Older Spring Ranch out in Idaho their beef is so sweet and so tender and so flavorful and they they're grazing on native prairie and through their grazing management they've increased their ground cover and their species diversity by 300 percent. and it comes through the meat you can you can taste it Mm -hmm. so i think my challenge is sometimes dealing with people that only want to eat stuff that tastes like corn is let's let's play a game let's really try and taste some of these different things and can you even taste it Mm -hmm. and maybe you can't taste it because you got ketchup all over everything or you're drinking (laughs) coca-cola i don't know Um, yeah i think what we've seen is, you know, more salt and more sugar and preserved food. So that t- stuff is tasting better while the food on the stores is tasting worse because there's very low nutrient density in it. So I can understand why people are eating processed food. Um, we just got to get them over the bridge and onto good quality food. Yeah. Well, and and then in your, in your last chapter, you talk about, you know, like the future is now and, and the, and the role of the consumer. And I'm very passionate about that too. I feel, I feel like, Consumers have to both ask for better, support better, and and you know really do more than just you know. There's all this consumer research that says that especially younger consumers they want this and they want that and they, but obviously they aren't following through because the processors aren't providing it. I mean, they just aren't. They they won't take it. I mean, with all the brand claims about regenerative, you know, you would be surprised people would be surprised to know that the inside of the food industry just really doesn't want it that it's it's a complication you know if it were all just you could keep the same commodity structure they'd be Mm. fine with it but they don't they don't want the personalized the connection the traceability you know all of that at least that's my experience what's what's been yours well we were looking at developing a working with the largest dairy producer in new zealand to have a regenerative um label right Mm -hmm. and and talk about you know this milk is higher in cla and all of these different components of milk and the reason that they turned us down in the end was but that makes our mainstream product sound like it's not as it's bad 
Mm. And they were like, oh, and I'm like, okay, that I can see that as a marketing problem. But yeah. also, I mean, the commodity system is designed to make those suppliers a lot of money and not be paying the producers. So really, it's the whole system that needs to shift. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that consumers have power, but really it is these guys that are steering where they get product from. And, you know, if you think of some of these producers, I think of like Eastern Montana, it's like, how are you going to get a product to someone's table in California? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's incredibly difficult. And the only place you can sell stuff into is the commodity market. So I think if we can close the number of steps and create more cooperative models and be looking at the quality of what we are then getting into the marketplace. Um, and we're seeing some really cool stuff. Um, I saw some really good examples of this when I was in the UK last week of, of, of producer groups getting together and actually having that supply chain minimized how many steps are there before you get to marketplace. Um, and yeah, it's going to take a community in order to do that, but very difficult to do by yourself. There are a number of uh, producers who are in some of our network who are actually selling direct to the public and selling through yeah. online and, yeah. uh, what do you think about that? Because it's obviously they're going to be limited in their scope, but does that have the ability to to shape the larger commodities and the larger brands and what they're doing? I, it would be nice to think so. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> I just, I just think you know, ranching and farming, producing food is a full time commitment in itself, and then. Mm-hmm we need to add on that next layer or you're going to add on chickens and turkeys. Um, you're going to add all these pieces and then you're going to direct market that. And then you're going to be talking to producers and uh, consumers and, you know, like that whole piece, it's, it's friends of mine that do it and do it very well. All I would say have um, ADHD that mm. people that don't sleep and yeah. that seem to thrive off high stress. Mm. And, you know, if, if that's your goal, then I think that's brilliant. Do it. But I also think we need to be thinking as communities and and mm-hmm. how do we do this more collaboratively instead of I'm isolated, I'm separate, and I need to kind of control all of this and do it all myself because um, it is a recipe for a burnout. Um, you know, and then what are you dropping? Oh, okay, I don't spend time with the kids. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's no, no, it's, a, it's an excellent point. And then maybe that consumer demand or questions could be turned toward a systematic requirements or, or, you know, obviously all of these buyers have specs that they, that they fulfill. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our hour. So um, what is your definition of regenerative agriculture? This is the thing with definitions. I hate boxes. It's kind of like, what is the definition of conventional agriculture? Mm. You know, good luck. Uh, So I like Lady Eve Balfour when she was talking about organics, she said organics is an attitude and I think that's a big part of regenerative agriculture. So we define it as a way of being in the world. And it's a way of being that encompasses complex, ecological, adaptive systems thinking. So it's the thinking that is given by your way of being in the world. And for us, it's a journey, that you're on a journey of growing food that or turf and fiber that improves the outcomes for soil health, biodiversity, ecosystem health, while producing high nutrient-dense quality food and happy producers. So if you're not profitable and you're miserable and you're stressed out, you're not regenerative, I'm sorry, in my definition. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's great. 
Well, thanks so much, Nicole. No, I look forward to seeing what you guys create. Uh, The world needs it. We are ready. So bring it on. (laughs) Okay. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. You've been listening to Tasting Terroir, a podcast made possible by a magical collaboration between the following companies and supporters, all working together to help farmers, chefs, food companies, and consumers to build healthier soil for a healthier world. Rhizoterra. Owned by Dr. Joe Clapperton, Rhizoterra is an international food security consulting company providing expert guidance for creating healthy soils that yield tasty, nutrient-dense foods. Check us out at rhizoterra.com. That's R-H-I-Z-O-T-E-R-R-A.com. And the Global Food and Farm online community, an ad-free global social network and soil health streaming service that provides information and connections that help you apply the science and practice of improving soil health. Join us at globalfoodandfarm.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through our Patreon account at patreon.com slash tastingterroir. Patrons receive access to our full-length interviews and selected additional materials. Patrons will also have the opportunity to submit questions that we will answer on the podcast. Tune in next week to hear more interviews and insights with myself, Sarah Harper, and Dr. Jill Clapperton, as well as the regenerative farmers, chefs, and emerging food companies in the global food and farm online community and beyond. If you like our work, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and for helping us get the word out about this new resource to taste the health of your food. Until next week, stay curious, keep improving, and don't stop believing that better is possible when knowledge is available.